Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. It is always such a pleasure to be able to bring some amazing guests, amazing content to you. And I'm just very grateful that you took the time to download this episode and to join me and Brandon as we get to talk with another amazing person. So Brandon, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. You know, we just finished a pretty hot a uh, few days up here in Pacific Northwest, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm out of Africa, I'm, I'm out of, you know, the central coast of California, I'll escape the heat, but holy smokes, man, we got up to like 105, 106. So wow. yeah, yeah, but we're surviving. We're doing okay. It's summertime. So that's going to happen. How about you, man? How you been? Well, you know, I was I was wondering how hot because, you know, here in Sacramento, that's like a normal day in the summer. So it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have no water, too. So it's just crazy. I saw some pictures of our lake in the area and we see the ruins that are out there. And um, yeah, so I hope it's not like the one year I rode my bike on the on the floor of the lake. Um, And uh, it was it was pretty amazing in not a good way. But there were they found a little city that was from 1814. It was pretty amazing. But um, that's a whole different story for a different day. We're not going to cover that today, believe it or not. I mean, we, we might, I doubt we'll ever cover it, but maybe we will. Maybe someday we'll do an archaeology episode and we can talk about it. But today we don't have that. Today we have something much better, much, much better. So who do we have on today, ma'am? Yeah, today uh, we're really excited to uh, have Dr. Greg Birch uh, coming in and, and talking with us about um, street living kids. So kids that have been living on the streets, um, a lot of our conversation has focused on kids that are separated from family. Um, often we talk about kids that are living in foster or adoptive situations. We'll talk about kids that are living in children's homes. Um, but the number of kids that are living on the streets is is really significant and, and a population that we absolutely have to take count for. So uh, we're bringing in Dr. Greg Birch of Multnomah University. He's a, he's a friend and a mentor. Uh, so uh, we're excited to learn from him today. Absolutely. Let's get to it. Dr. Greg Birch, uh, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. We are uh, so uh, excited to, to have you in here today. I'm personally excited as, as a friend and a mentor to me. Uh, so welcome to the show, man. Hey, Brandon, it's great to be on here. Phil, it's nice to meet you too, as, as you know, we, we were talking about. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on the Think Orphan podcast. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we uh, have a lot of conversations here, we're meeting people that are, um, you know, uh, people that have been, that have left care, um, people that are practitioners, um, some people that are educators and so forth. Um, there's a reason we brought you on here. So, but why don't we just first start by just kind of learning, you know, what's your background in working with at-risk children and, and orphans and, you know, how did God really lead you, uh, into this space, uh, focusing on, on orphans, vulnerable children and at-risk youth? Man, uh, the older I get, the longer the story becomes, right? So I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, like probably many of our listeners, you know, as a young person growing up in Orange County, California, um, in a church, uh, our church was always looking for ways to get involved locally with what was going on with, with children in particular. And because we live so close to the border with Mexico, uh, youth pastors and youth leaders and, and even my parents were involved in bringing me down to Baja, California, 
at even at you know the age of 11 i remember my my dad taking me down with a group of other people from the church and visiting an orphanage in, in just outside of tijuana so it was those early um kind of experiences that really kind of began to awaken my conscience on in terms of the needs that were out there i grew up in a, a just i'll just say it a pretty affluent community in orange county california and um and then contrasting the experiences that I was seeing as a very young person myself, 11, 12 years of age, uh, man, my mind was blown in some ways. And, um, you know, and so over the years, as, as I had the opportunity to move up into youth ministry myself as a young person and, and get other kids involved in, in doing outreaches, primarily with orphanages in Baja, California, uh, as well as some street ministry in Los Angeles and San Diego, uh, that's what kind of awakened my, um, I guess, my spirit to what was going on around the world. Uh, at the age of, of 16, I was invited to go and join a, a, a mission, short-term mission trip to Europe. And that also awakened my consciousness in terms of what was going on with kids on the streets of Amsterdam and other places. So it was just getting outside of my environment, outside of, of the of the. the the context that I was living in that really began to wake me up to some of the needs. And so that kind of uh, evolved into other opportunities. I eventually went to college and had opportunities to do internships. My, my very first internship was working in Bogota, Colombia um, with an organization called Action International. Uh, I spent uh, two months there with Action, working primarily with kids on the streets of Bogota. Um, and then a, a little town where they had a residential center uh, outside of Bogota. And so, you know, as a college student by that, by that time, seeing kids as young as 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age living on the streets just, just once again kind of blew my mind. Um, and, and I returned from a summer working in, in, in Colombia kind of pretty much at the point of realizing that how could I not not return? Um, it, it was, I was compelled to, to go back and do something. And we'll get into maybe Savior Complex and all these issues right at, later, at a later point. But at that point, I was just responding to the need. I was responding to what I was seeing. And yeah. um, my junior year in college, I had the opportunity to to visit and spend time with a good friend of mine, John Hazlitt, who's, a, who's really a, a mentor and the executive director of an organization called Niños de la Luz, Children of the Light in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and South Sudan. Uh, he invited me to join him as they were just starting off the organization in Caracas, Venezuela. So my junior year spent a number of weeks with John and Shannon um, and their ministry, Niños de la Luz, in Caracas. And and once again, I was just kind of uh, asking some of those very deep questions about what is happening, why are there children on the streets, what is my role in um, being involved in, in, in working with those kids, and, and that eventually led me back to Caracas, where I, I moved and, and lived for, for seven years uh, wow. working with that organization. So we can get more into to the details and, and so forth, but that's kind of my journey in a very brief um, story uh but yeah i'm still deeply impacted by those memories i'm yeah. impacted by my time 
having worked not only in Venezuela, but Costa Rica, Bolivia, and other places in Latin America. Yeah, that's, that's uh, always in- encourages me um, and inspires me as well to continue doing what we're doing when we hear these stories from just how God is working in all kinds of different ways. Another cool thing, as you said, South Orange County, I just all of a sudden perked up because it's where I grew up. So I just went and did a little search. I think we actually grew up together. You're a Mission Viejo guy. Yeah, Phil. Wow. And I saw Jason Carson and Jeff Grable, my good friends. So, yeah. oh, yeah. Were you a Mission High? No, I was at Capitol. Capitol. Okay, you, you can't make this stuff up, folks. I'm just doing this to show that you never know who you're talking to. So I won't get into the Capo versus Mission rivalry that we had growing up. but, <laughs> okay, but uh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so all that to say, we won league over Capo that year, but, that, but that's a whole different story. Um, I, will, I will say, though, it's pretty cool how God works in really fun, cool ways to be able to see – just the different connections. And I, and I say this because you never know who you're talking to. And so this is absolutely not even in the script here, folks. But literally, as he was doing his little, you know, intro there, I looked it up and just wow. so cool. So cool. This is this is how it works. If you want to know a glimpse in the life of Phil Dark, this is this is kind of how it works. I just there <laughs> seems to always be a connection with someone. So that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, except uh, collaboration. And let's let's start. Uh, you know, that's that's a that's a point of trust that we can go on is the fact that we're both Mission Viejo natives, which is which is pretty darn cool. Um, I think we're about the same age, too. So that's that's another fun thing. Uh, but that's uh, not what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about really the, you know, the work that you've been doing and such a, an amazing thing as, I, as I've traveled the world as well. One of the constants that we see, unfortunately, are kids living in the streets, on the streets and just uh, can you just give us a taste of the big picture? You, you kind of alluded to it in your intro. Um, you know, I know gone to Brazil, have gone to Ethiopia, gone to Uganda, gone, the list goes on and on, Honduras. Um, and again, you see it. Can you just give us what the, the big picture looks like? How many children, you know, living on the streets globally, just generally speaking, what is the street children uh, population and, and the, the, the really the issues that we have going on around the world look like? Great question, Phil. I look forward to chatting more about our childhoods growing up in Mission Viejo. Um, this is where I put on my academic hat, right? Uh, and questions like this about how many kids are on the street, uh, you know, I, I, they're challenging questions to, to respond to. And let me, let me try to do my best with this. And I'll, I'll get into a few issues that concern me um, when we start uh, using statistics and so forth. But uh, obviously there's uh, a lot of children living on the streets. Uh, that is an anecdotal kind of experience that I've had. I've, I've visited, you know, did my PhD research in Cochabamba, Bolivia with a great organization, Viva International and their early encounter project. And I witnessed, um, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of children living on the street. And I, I, I could, you know, I could repeat that experience in other places around the world, Katali, Kenya, Nairobi, uh, Kigali, Rwanda. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, these are, these are beautiful countries, beautiful people, beautiful cultures, but I have also witnessed alongside um, you know, children living on the streets, as well as Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, um, 
So, so statistically, it, it's, it's impossible to, to identify how many children live in the world. Since 1989, UNICEF has been saying that there, there are close to 100 million children living on the streets. But how do we define street children or street-connected children? Those are some of the big questions that we really, um, that there's more questions than answers at this point even, because how we understand what we mean by street children, right? Um, so over the years, I've read numbers literally like 200 million children live on the streets, 100 million children live on the streets, 50 million, 30 million, 10 million. Um, if, if you go and, and kind of do your lit review, right, your literature review, you, you get into the different research that is taking place around lives of young people on the streets. And, and you just come up with all kinds of numbers. And there's reasons for that. Countries and governments tend to deflate numbers, organizations. Yes, even some of us have inflated numbers uh, due to, uh, you know, donor appeal and so forth. Others have just used methodologies, um, quantitative methodologies that are just uh, poorly designed. And so we get numbers here. And, and by the way, too, when, when it when comes to citing the numbers of street children around the world, street connected children, probably a better term, or community children, um, when it comes to citing, how often do we just read about organizations citing other folks, you know, citing UNICEF or citing um, Human Rights Watch or citing uh, Compassion or, or some of these other organizations. Very, very few studies that I've ever read actually describe using raw data their, their methodology and, and their contacts. So, so forgive me, this is where I said I have my academics hat on. Um, but, you know, Tobias Hecht, he's an anthropologist. His, his book, At Home in the Streets, it came out, it's an ethnography written from the perspective of, of an anthropologist uh, in Northeast Brazil, Recife to be precise, uh, talks about how, uh, how there's really problems when it comes to numbering children living on the streets. And, and even in, in his research, which goes back 20 years now, um, he identified just some real, real significant problems. And, and uh, he had quoted other folks that said that there were close to, you know, 7 million or 10 million children living on the streets in Brazil. And, and he did the research, you know, he actually counted heads in Recife, Brazil, for example, and uh, he identified about 292 kids living on the streets. This is literally counting heads, you know, um, during his time there. Um, and so he estimates, for example, just in Brazil, that actual numbers of children living on the street are more like 39,000. Now, this goes back 20 years um, but I think that the point is that we need to be very careful when it comes to asking the question and or answer, rather answering the question, how many children live on the streets? We just simply don't know. But we know that one child on the street is one too many. And we know that there's more than one. Yeah. And that's yeah, something that I've talked with a lot of people about because people get caught up in the numbers of orphans. And what does the orphan even mean? And street kids aren't included in that number in UNICEF. And and all these things that are that are you could get lost in very easily. But I keep going back to exactly what you said, which is, look, if there's one or 10 or 20 or 100, the point is there's a whole lot of kids. 
that need love and need care and need hope of the gospel, need hope to understand that they are uniquely created with amazing gifts and talents, right? So how do we love them, right? That's the question. Those are the things that we need to do. And then we know there's a bunch, right? So if you're counting them and there's more than you can handle, there's more than I can take care of, there's more than Brandon can take care of, there's more than all the organizations that are working in that area probably can take care of it at one time. So let's get to it, right? So on that, on that note, what are some common approaches that, uh, that the governments around the world that you've seen and the different, you know, uh, people that are taking this on, um, really the, the approaches they use to address the prevalence of the, the street-connected children and youth? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Phil. Um, maybe just one more comment, too, on that previous uh, question. You know, I, I was once challenged by a ministry leader, He's, and I had told him that there were, you know, this was, goes back a few years now. I had once told him that there were, were 100 million children on the streets. He said, your goal should be to reach 100 million children. And at the time, I was like, okay, let's do it, right? <laughs> let's do it. Um, I don't, let's get real though. I, I don't think that is a realistic goal. Um, uh, it's certainly not a smart goal. <laughs> uh, how, how, do, how do we measure what our task is in terms of reaching kids? I, I would just encourage everyone like to look in their community, wherever they're planted and, and ask the question, how many young people are vulnerable in this context, whether that be street connected children um, others who are living in at, other at-risk situations, conflict, trafficking, you name it, right? Who are the kids? Where are they living? And what can we do about it, right? Yeah. Based on good practice. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll leave that point there. But in terms of government, um, man, yeah, there's some governments doing great work, no doubt. Um, my experiences generally have been a couple responses and those include sweeping children into different sections of the city or into detention centers. We saw this uh, on a regular basis in Venezuela, where I was living and working for, for a number of years. Uh, children were nomadic. They would be in one, you know, one section of the city, one week, the next section of the, of a city, of the city of the next week, because they were pushed there uh, by police and by authorities, or they were locked up in detention centers. Um, and I have seen that as a frequent kind of approach. It's, it's a Band-Aid approach to children living on the streets. And we know that ultimately children living on the streets need to have opportunities to, to be cared for, to be supported by loving adults. Um, generally speaking, uh, Brandon, I know you want to talk about this some. They need to be with their families, uh, extended families. And if not, if that's not possible with other families, um, but residential care and institutional care is, is a common approach as well. And we're starting to see obviously a shift in that as there's been more emphasis on family reunification, uh, even different forms of foster care. I think what Casa Viva is doing in Costa Rica, uh, Philip and Jill Aspergen down there um, are doing a terrific job in helping to encourage churches and encourage Christians to take up the cause of, of foster care and congregate care. Um, so, so we've seen improvements in terms of our approaches moving from residential care to family reunification certainly taking place. But unfortunately, we still see a lot of um, kind of, I guess, residential centers uh, developing as the only approach. Um, mm -hmm. I also think of what Roble Alto is 
is doing in, in Costa Rica, you know, another organization that I've had the opportunity to spend time with. They use residential care for temporary shelters, um, but ultimately the goal is to get children back with their families. Now, thinking back to the work that we did in Caracas, I spent most of my early years in Venezuela on the streets with kids. So I feel like I got to know them pretty well. Um, and, and most of them had living biological parents. They were on the streets for multiple reasons, and we'll probably talk about that later. Um, but we had a, a great opportunity and, and probably missed the opportunity to really see those young people reunified with their family members, extended family, uncles, aunts, so forth. Um, but our approach at the time was, was the best practice, which was residential centers. Um, getting them in family, uh, small family units uh, with a, 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 you know, a foster mom, a foster dad, uh, with tios and tias, uncles and aunts to help provide care for them. And that was, that was kind of the best practice at the time uh, in the 90s, um, early 2000s. And uh, so we still see that quite a bit around the world. Uh, Christian organizations responding in that way. And um, yeah, I, th I think we're moving towards uh, theories of kind of helped us, you know, develop other practices and we're moving yeah. that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good. And, and you know, I, we work quite a bit with Agape Children's Ministry uh, working in Kisumu and Katale, and they have similar to Roble Alto that, uh, you know, using the residential facility as a short-term intervention type of thing while working to uh, get the kids back. I mean, when we talk about, you know, we can talk about continuum of care, we can talk about a menu of services, as my friends at SFAC say, um, you know, we, we actually need all of these different types of intervention, because the caseload of children that are in needs uh, tends to be pretty diverse. And sometimes, um, you know, even for us working, you know, I work for One Million Home, where our focus is explicitly to help kids get into family and home. But that doesn't mean that there's absolutely never a role for residential care, you know, short-term emergency care or rehabilitation and treatment centers. Um, it is it is on the continuum. And, and for certain kids, uh, of course, there's a severe over-reliance on it. Um, and we see kids institutionalized that have no business going into an orphanage in the first place. But um, it's still, you know, sometimes the right uh, thing to do, um, whether that was back in the 90s or even now, there, there is still a role for it. Now, I want to kind of uh, even kind of zero down a little bit. Um, you know, what's going on at that child and family level, um, or maybe it's a community thing. What, what are some of those main reasons, Greg, that um, are leading children to go to the streets? What are, what are some of those, it could be push, pull factors. What are those, what are those things uh, that are leading kids to the streets? Great question. And again, you know, um, forgive me for uh, kind of getting into the nuances of, of this question, but when it comes to push and pull factors, I think that's a helpful way to, to understand uh, why children, uh, what are the contributing factors, I guess, that are leading children to the street, whether that to be working on the streets or living on the streets. Um, as helpful as those terms are, I tend to think of it more in, in line, you know, in, in the way of children being ripped um, out of their communities or torn out of their communities or shoved into the streets. I mean, it's, 
there are more factors than just pull and push, right? And we, we understand that there's systemic issues, right? Um, I have a case study in one of my classes here at Multnomah, and we talk about the contributing factors for why children end up, end up on the street. I mean, almost all of them have forms of multidimensional poverty that are in their background, right? Um, their needs are not being cared for. The shelter, uh, the, the place where they live perhaps um, is too dense. We know density of populations creates psychological stress. And so, and so we could go into a lot of the multidimensional issues um, that they're facing, but there's also systemic issues. I mean, there's educational systems that are failing. There are economic systems and political systems that are failing the, these kids. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that um, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps it's, it's the church that is failing their, their, their kids in their community. So there are multidimensional uh, and holistic reasons why children end up on the streets. The classics are they're being pulled into the streets due to having access to uh, in the informal market. They're earning money for their families where I spent a lot of my time doing research in Cochabamba, Bolivia, children working on the streets was just a necessity, especially among the poor. It was a necessity. So, yeah. so kids, most kids worked on the streets, right? Um, they were pulled to the streets and they were pushed out of their homes to do that. That was their way of contributing. And so, so we look at some of these push and pull factors for why <clears throat> children it's important to recognize that children just don't become instant street children. And, and by the way, you know, I, I don't like that term. It's a label. It's, it's a category we use. But, uh, you know, these children are connected to the street um, for a variety of reasons. And they don't become instant, instant kids on the street, right? There's this process. There's this street lifestyle development process that takes place in their lives. Maybe they start off working. I think of one of the young people that, that I saw, his life just radically transformed. His name is Douglas. He's now the director of the organization Niños de la Luz in, in the Dominican Republic. I first got to know him on that trip when I was a junior in college. And, you know, he started off his life working on the streets, singing on the streets, juggling on the streets just to, to get some, some money to take home to his mom. Um, and when the situation became so, um, so desperate in the home that included physical abuse and so forth, he ended up just choosing to stay on the streets. But it was a process that took him to the streets. It was, it was being pushed out of his own home and his own community. It was being pulled um, by the opportunities he saw on the street, by the entertainment, by the independence of, of living on the streets. And and this is all stuff he told me later on after his life was transformed over really a 10-year period of time. And so kids, what we need to recognize is that they don't become instant kids living on the street, right? It's this process of, of developing habits, of developing opportunities, and that's really what kind of pushed them to the street, developing street knowledge. Man, uh, if, if, you know, I oftentimes told our donors and others, if I were to spend one night, one night on the streets of Caracas, Venezuela, there, there's no way I would, I, would, I would live through the night. And these young people develop knowledge of how to survive, yeah. how to, yeah. you know, on the streets. So, so these are issues that, that are part of this street lifestyle development that I talk about in, in some of my research. Yeah. Um, 
but but yeah, sorry, I'm I'm kind of getting into all the nuances of, of no, this why is great. End up going to the street, but oh, it's, it's yeah, I mean, but that's what the long form podcast is all about is getting into nuance. I know you have a podcast as well. So so that's what these conversations are all about. And we need to understand the nuance. Um, these situations for children are not happening in a vacuum. And there aren't just broad brush solutions necessarily to um, fix the situation that these kids are going through. Uh, each kid uh, has their own uh, specific ecology. Um, each child has their own background and family system and, and all these different things that we have to be taking into account. So uh, the nuance is exactly what we need. So thank you uh, so much, Greg. Uh, you know, as we are talking about some of those push-pull factors, we're talking about, okay, you know, how reliable are numbers? Are numbers even helpful? We see it, whether we're in East Africa, Southeast Asia, right here in the US, Latin America, of course, where, where you've worked extensively. Um, we can see what's going on. Now, now let's, let's turn the corner just a touch. What are some of those successful interventions? We've, we've talked a little bit about uh, care settings. Um, there could be a role for residential care, at least uh, hopefully just for that initial intervention piece as much as possible. Um, we talked about family-based care. Um, so these are some of those um, you know, interventions and, and restorative practices. Uh, what are some of those other things you know, from your time in Venezuela and other Latin American countries? Um, what have you seen work in terms of serving and intervening on behalf of street connected children and youth? Yeah, I think it, it I think it really begins, uh, like good practice, um, begins on the streets. Uh, Paulo Freire, <clears throat> he wrote a book. He's really well known for his, his work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, but he wrote a book also about, um, engaging in dialogical relationships with street children. It was produced by UNICEF number like eons ago, right? Um, but he really makes the argument that good education, and, and by education, he's talking, he's talking a, a, about a holistic understanding of education, like uh, helping young people to develop healthy lives. That all begins with where they're at. You know, I, I think sometimes, especially us Christians, we're guilty of, um, of going to the street, uh, working with street kids, and wanting to get them off the streets immediately, and 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 in some cases, rightly so, because their lives depend on it. But Paulo Freire, um, Roger Hart, who's a sociologist, Judith Inu, Cambridge professor, as they as they write about engaging with kids, they say it starts with a good practice starts with engaging with them where they're at. Um, it, it it involves animating their uh, their agency, animating the capacities that they have based on who they are. For us as followers of Christ, it, it starts with recognizing the image of God, recognizing that they are part of God's creation. And as part of God's creation, they are creators themselves. They are many creators. Um, and so they have opportunities, they have ideas, they have innovative approaches to surviving on the street. Let's Let's catalyze, let's, let's um, you know, use those, let's leverage those ideas and those innovations that kids themselves have um, living on the streets to move them towards healthier lifestyles. Let's also be willing to, to learn from them as well. So, so it starts with engaging them with good education on the streets, developing a, a relationship of trust, developing a 
what Paulo Freire refers to as the pedagogical relationship, this relationship of learning from them. And once we're learning from them, perhaps they will be in a place to learn from us as well as street educators and as people who care for them. But then let's move to the next level, right? That might be a drop-in center. That might be a, a place where kids feel comfortable spending time with us um, as educators. And, and hopefully by meeting us, we're, everyone who works in the project has, has a good background check on them. There's been certain protection protocols that they have gone through to make sure that the drop-in center is a safe place for children and, and, and young people who live on the streets. And then let's move, let's move in, in, that, in a way that is healthy to getting them off the streets permanently, right? Yeah. But it's a process. It's not like we can show up one day, be the savior and get them off the streets. It's, it's about developing a relationship. And this goes back to the gospel, developing a relationship with folks, living incarnationally, spending time with them on the streets, moving them through the, this process of developing trust with their caregivers, drop-in centers. Um, and this is what I saw in Cochabamba, Bolivia. It all started with these relationships on the street. There was part of my research was looking at 11 local churches and what they were doing with uh, in partnership with other organizations, nonprofits on the streets of Cochabamba. They all worked together so that they weren't duplicating each other's work. They were multiplying each other's work. They shared case management with each other. Um, and they all provided different steps in the process of healing. Outreach centers, eventually temporary residential centers. And then even what we're seeing in some places is moving them into uh, foster type care centers, our homes where children can be um, you know, reunified eventually with their family if that's a possibility. So there's a lot here, but it basically starts with developing strong relationships, Brandon. No doubt you've seen that in your own work and, and Phil, you, you as well. Yep, no question about that. So we've kind of gone from big picture to on the ground uh, from the standpoint of the street children. And, and, you know, I, I'm with you. We got to find better names for all these things, right? Cause they're, they're, we want to come up with identifiers and not, you know, identities. Right. And so that's very different. Um, but uh, then we went to uh, kind of the, the on the ground of the education of the children and of the people in those communities and now let's pull it back even further because we do have so much education that we need to do here as the people who are, you know, part of the solution at whatever level, right? You talked about Savior Complex and all these different things that we have, but there is a place, there is a role. We're on this conversation for a reason. And so right now you are actually, you know, no longer on the field, so to speak. I mean, you're on the field, the different field, but now you're in a university training up um, college students, you know, at, at, a, at a very important phase of their life where they're determined, you know, they're figuring out their identities. They're figuring out who they are. They're figuring out how they're going to be able to add and contribute to the world, hopefully bring a little shalom to the communities they're in. What does that look like, right? So, can you talk about that a little bit as far as what you're doing uh, at Multnomah and how it relates to all this other work that you're doing and why you think it's a critical component? You know, obviously you're doing it, so you think it's important. 
Um, so, you know, why is that something that we need as part of this puzzle to take care of all these things? Yeah, so uh, my current role is I'm the director of the Global Development and Justice uh, Program. It's a graduate program here at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we also have a global studies program, which is a bachelor's degree. We actually have an emphasis or a concentration in working with children at risk. So uh, wear multiple hats when it comes to the different programs, but it, it's really a joy to see students kind of impacted, um, trained, um, and, and geared up to really support vulnerable children and other folks around the world in different, different ways, different sectors, really. Um, going back a few years, one of the reasons why I really got involved with this work was because, because of my own experiences working with children on the street. I, prior to pursuing my own graduate degree, you know, I was left with a lot of questions about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And I was convinced that I just needed more training. And so I went to graduate school, spent time at Fuller. Um, some of my mentors there, professors, really kind of guided me. And then I eventually uh, went back to Venezuela, my wife and I, and we were married halfway during my time in graduate school. And we went back to Venezuela and things looked different. I had a different lens on, so to speak, to engage with the kids. Not that what I was doing was all wrong or bad, certainly made a lot of mistakes, but, um, you know, I just had a different pair of lenses on to see the world in, in different ways and to, to recognize um, that there was a lot of folks on the ground in Venezuela, Venezuelans who understood their context and, and did everything that I could at that time to empower and to um, support them and to follow their lead in many cases. And, and um, it was a great opportunity to be part of that. But one of the reasons I got into training, Phil, was, was um, I had, you know, over the years, I had more and more opportunities to, to be part of consulting different organizations and, and homes in Venezuela and other parts of Latin America. And I came across this one situation, um, which was really unfortunate. It was a, a home on the outskirts of Caracas, there was some good intentioned people working with children from a local community that were living on the streets. And, and I'll just be honest with you, what I saw was devastating. Uh, so in sincere, good intentioned Christians um, trying to, to respond to the needs of kids living on the street. And it was heartbreaking to see the response and to see their intentions and the results of their intentions. And, uh, it basically added up to spiritual abuse and in some cases, physical abuse. And um, the team that I was with, a pastor and a psychologist, we all left that situation hoping for, for a better outcome. And eventually that organization was taken over by local government um, because they failed to meet the needs of, of the kids. And as a result of that experience, it led me more and more into training. I never started off, you know, ever intending to be part of a, a graduate program here in the United States, but really had look, looked for more and more opportunities that led me to teach in Costa Rica and train and work with folks that were going out to work with at-risk youth and children. That opportunity eventually led to uh, my role here at Multnomah. And I am passionate about seeing our students, whether that be our graduate students or college students here at Multnomah, um, inspired, um, and given the tools and resources to understand best practices, that doesn't all come from me, it comes from the resources that we could provide and seeing them go out and have an impact in the communities where they work. And I think Brandon is a great example of that. Brandon was in our, our program 
Um, it was a joy to work with Brandon and, and, and hundreds of others um, that have come through the program that are doing really amazing work around the world. And that's because they, they've been trained. That's because they are passionate about following Jesus into these hard, hard places. And uh, so that's what kind of gets me up every day now. Um, and, you know, when the opportunity came to come to Multnomah, I really felt like the Lord was calling me here. It was my mission field, so to speak. I was leaving one mission field, going to another mission mm -hmm. field. And that was in order to multiply workers for his harvest um, and to see additional people going out into some, some of the most challenging areas and, and sectors on the margins around the world. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I teach at a university here in Northern California and it's, similar feeling i mean and, and, and the the thing that we are always bucking up against though and we did you we've mentioned it a few times is this white savior complex american savior i think it's not so much a white savior complex as much as just an american or western culture savior complex um where we we think we have the answers because we're more educated or we're more whatever but i don't think it's just um us here i think it's people who are at the higher levels thinking about the issues that we actually think we have the answers because we're analyzing it in a vacuum. We're analyzing it in this, in this nice little Petri dish where we can control the setting. But you and I both know because we both worked on the field at some level, you a little bit more, you got your hands a little bit more dirty than I was able to. Boy, you know, what, how do we bridge that theory practice gap? How do we teach that? How do we train that? Um, and how are we able to, you know, come up with these theories which are critical to have these high level conversations, but to be able to bring them into the practical, you, you alluded to it earlier with the education on the ground, but there's steps in between there that to, to be able to create that bridge. What, is, what does that look like? And I think the bottom line, honestly, if, if, if we don't, you know, help people recognize that, uh, that first of all, God is present way before we show up. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that we don't need to take on that savior complex. Um, the, the bottom line is if folks are going into these communities and, I, and I've seen it time and time again, going into these communities with this messianic savior complex, people will burn out. Mm -hmm. Burnout is incredibly high for those. I, I remember Patrick McDonald, the founder of Viva International years ago, uh, citing a report saying that, you know, upwards of 80% of people who work with uh, vulnerable children burn out within two, two years. Um, and that's because we take on this sense of messianic uh, complexes and, 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 and seek to do it all by ourselves. And first of all, recognizing God is already present is, is critically important recognizing he's already at work in the lives of, of the kids, you know, in, in this context, mm -hmm. connected children, he's already at work in their lives. Um, he doesn't need you and I, he can do it himself, uh, but that we have the opportunity and the privilege to join in with what he is doing. So, uh, you know, you talk about bridging the gap between theory and, and practice. Um, you know, I, I'm a practitioner at heart, so anytime I bump up against theory, which which is quite often these days, I'm always asking the question: Does this work on the ground? Mm -hmm. This stuff work? And I want to know that. I, I don't always have the opportunity because I'm, I'm too busy directing a program to to get out into the field and to test whether it works. 
Um, but I certainly rely on others. And I'm always asking that question, does it work, right? Good theory will lead to good models and to good policy. Good theory leads to good models and good policy. And I think, um, you know, I think back to a theory that has deeply impacted me, has deeply impacted my work, has deeply impacted the work of others. It's called The Ladder of Participation. It was written by Roger Hart, a sociologist in 1982, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It was produced by UNICEF. And it was this theory that we need to involve children in the decision-making process. Um, if their lives depend on it, they need to be part of the decision-making pro decision process. They need to have voice. They need to be empowered. Use whatever term you'd like to use. Yeah. Their agency needs to be animated. Um, and this theory written by, by Roger Hart has been proven out. It's been um, tested in the field. We have seen significant, significant um, practice that has encouraged young people to be part of the the answer, the solution to their own lives. And it's not, it's not say, it doesn't say adults shouldn't be involved, right? And we mm -hmm. recognize the importance of adults being involved in the lives of kids. But this theory has been tested and been proven to actually encourage young people towards a more healthier lifestyles. And so um, when it comes to bridging the gap between theory and practice, test it out. Do your research, right? Uh, get involved in, in, a, in a consortium of researchers or of others that are doing good social science, evidence-based research and test it out. There's yeah. no, really, no other um, thing that's going to help us kind of move towards good practice than, than testing out good theory. Um, don't rule it out because it was developed by a sociologist. Don't rule it out because it was developed by an armchair theologian. Um, you know, these folks are dedicating their time and their experience and to research and, and thinking critically about these issues. Engage in conversation. That's, that's what I would say. That's, that's a conversation I have in my head all the time. Like, how do we engage with the researchers? Um, and I love the partnerships that are developing between NGOs and, and training academic uh, organizations like, like Multnomah and, and many. Yeah. No, I think that there's, there's so much goodness there. I mean, we could, we could mine that and talk for hours and hours. But the one thing I do want to follow up with there is this idea of models versus, you know, like a how-to versus a framework, right? Something I talk with a lot of people about. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Rather than coming in and saying, here's the way to do it, here's the model, even if you think it's the perfect thing, to know that there's nuances and to say, here's kind of a framework that we've established that we're going to bring it in and, and talk with you about it. Why don't you check it out and let's have a conversation and see, would this work here? And if so, what would it look like here? And how can we work this out together? What, what do you think of that? Yeah. You know, um, several years ago, I was part of a, I, I wrote a small, just a really small article in a book called understanding God's heart for children. It was produced by world world vision and um, uh, the, the lead author, author on it was Doug McConnell from Fuller. And in that they developed a framework for understanding God's heart for children. And um, it was multi-authored. So there was a lot of folks involved in that conversation and that framework for understanding God's heart for children. Uh, you can take a look at the book. It's out there still. I think it's going to, going to be re-edited um, re and re 
produced in the coming years by Dave Scott from Fuller. Dave, uh, let me know how I can help you if you're listening to this. Um, you know, it's so there are frameworks that have been developed and that include folks from collaborating together from around the world that have been really productive in terms of helping us to to push the envelope in our care for children. Um, frameworks are what guide us. And, and Phil, I think you're, you're, you're hitting on a really important point, whether that be street connected children, community children, whether that be other vulnerable children, understanding the local context is everything. Within the academia and sociology, we talk a lot about social constructionism, this idea that, um, that we construct realities within local contexts, even the, the concept, how we perceive of childhood is constructed differently in different concepts. There's some problems with social constructionism and I won't get into those details, but there's also some benefits to the, the theory, the idea behind social constructionism. If we don't understand and we don't correctly perceive childhood as it's understood locally, then we're starting off with the wrong foot. And so um, having a framework allows us to have those conversations. What does childhood mean to this local community? And part of the problem that we've seen with um, models around street connected children is that one model is developed and it's kind of thrown out there and everybody runs with it in you know, different parts of Africa, Asia, Latin America, North America, we run with it. When in the reality it was developed off of a framework in one particular context, right? And so let's have conversations with folks that truly understand their local context, that understand even the, the, the very perception of childhood in that context. Like how, how, how does the local culture understand childhood? Does it, does it perceive childhood as, as being a, a, you know, innocent and where play and, and protection are central kind of factors? Or do they understand childhood as, um, you know, being comprised of working and contributing to the, to the household? How, how do we understand childhood? And within that framework, or within those conversations, it can lead to specific models that are much more contextualized to the needs of folks on the ground. So that, that's, that's what I would say. And part of my research in Cochabamba um, involved looking at those local contexts and understanding street-connected children within that context of Cochabamba. Oftentimes what we do is we connect, you know, we try to say, you know, children in Cochabamba, well, they're just like kids in Caracas, Venezuela. They're just like kids in the Northern Triangle of Central America when, when that's just simply not true. And, and so we start off our projects um, really doing a disservice to the very kids we're, we're called to reach. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, so, so many important considerations in there. And um, I, I just feel like that, uh, you know, I've, I've used hearts, uh, ladder of participation as well. Um, you know, there's just, there's just a lot in there. And I, I think you really gave us a, a good framework for how to, how to bridge these things. And, you know, there's so, so many different things that we could, that we can continue to talk about. Uh, and this has just been so enlightening. Um, we're going to, of course, point ways that people can connect with, with you, Greg, and, 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 the, the resources that you're producing and, and opportunities to connect. Um, we do have just a couple uh, quick kind of closeout questions that we ask every guest. And uh, you've, you've mentioned some people that some of us have maybe never even heard of. Maybe I've heard of them because I was in your classes. Uh, but uh, what, from a reading or watching perspective, what have you watched, read, or listened to 
that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children and at-risk youth and street-connected children and youth, whatever you want to frame in there. Uh, how can we love and serve these kids with excellence? What have you read or watched along those lines? Well, you know, in my early days when I was teaching, I, I watched a lot of documentaries um, <laughs> to the point where my wife, Christina, she was like, you're watching way too many documentaries. Yeah. And she was right. I, I was getting burned out and I was becoming cynical. And, and so I, I kind of stopped watching documentaries <laughs> um, and usually use those now for my classes. Um, so I, I, I can't necessarily point to a whole lot of things that I've watched lately, but I, you know, some of the people that have deeply impacted me in terms of research on different populations, I think of Tobias Hecht, he's an anthropologist who's done a wonderful job with an ethnography. I think of other ethnographies that I have read that are more in the field of anthropology, but look at these specific contexts around the world, because I want to understand what is going on, you know, in Recife, Brazil. I want to understand what's going on in Caracas, Venezuela. So I read a book by Patricia Marquez, a Venezuelan anthropologist who's at UC San Diego now. Um, so taking time and learning from firsthand researchers has been really yeah. significant. Um, so in, yeah. in the Christian world of, of literature, you know, in my early days, it was Phyllis Kilborn. Everybody perhaps listening to this is familiar with Phyllis Kilborn as she was really a pioneer in helping us to understand how to engage with at-risk youth and children. Uh, but lately it's been spending time with, with anthropologists and, yeah. and other social science researchers trying to, Judith Inu as well, I think she's now retired from Cambridge. Um, other social science researchers that kind of get, on, get into these nuances that we've been talking a little bit about um, those are the, the folks that have deeply impacted me. In, in, I've also part of a study group uh, that's part of the International Association of Mission Studies. And uh, we just produced uh, a compilation really recently, a multi-author book um, that deals with vulnerabilities and inequalities um, specifically that are faced by children from around the world. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. you can find more information about that on my my website, developmentandjustice.com. But those are the type of people that I spend time with, researchers that are in their local context that are identifying issues. Because if we're truly going to develop good practice and, and these frameworks that Phil was talking about, um, they, they need to be done by locals on the ground that understand their context. So that's, that's kind of where yeah. I spend a lot of my time, obviously, because I teach in a much broader uh, field of global development you know, I do a lot of reading stuff from Bryant Myers, spend time reading his stuff. Um, yeah, I can go That's on good. and on, but I'll keep the topic on, on kids. Yeah, well, you just you just filled up our library. That was awesome. And some of those people I have read, Bryant Myers, Phyllis Kilborn. Uh, so also definitely recommend. I just finished her book on HIV AIDS. Uh, but anyways, uh, really, really great stuff there, Greg. And uh, to our listeners, we will be linking all of those in the show notes on thinkorphan.com. So you guys can check out uh, work that Dr. Birch has done as well as some of those recommendations. All right, on a personal level, this is a final question. What person has impacted you. So you can't say Tobias Hecht because I don't know if you know him personally, but uh, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Man, um, a, a few mentors, you know, John Hazlitt, um, 
He is the founder, him and his wife, Shannon, John and Shannon, are the founders of Ninas de la Luz. And John has been a, a lifelong mentor of mine. He, in my early years, he really was the one that inspired me, encouraged me to get involved working with kids on, in the margins of this world. His passion for Jesus, his passion to see kids um, rescued off the streets is, has always been a, a, a significant factor in my life. I think of Doug McConnell and his work at Fuller Theological Seminary, former provost and dean of the School of Intercultural Studies. Um, not only his research, um, but also his leadership. You know, it was those folks and, and, you know, my wife, Christina, has probably had the most significant influence on me. She works in a she works primarily with migrant children in a bilingual school in a community where those children aren't always welcomed. And so it's folks like that. Um, it's people around me that that I get to spend time with my students and what they're doing that deeply, deeply inspire me. So there's countless folks I haven't mentioned as I as I think of those who have had significant impact in my life. But grateful for. Um, yeah everyone who's, who's out there doing the hard work of loving kids in the name of Jesus. Yeah. You know, and that's something that we all have so many people that have, that have helped us along the way. And, uh, I just, again, want to thank you for being a part of this show. Thank you for, for taking the time to share what uh, God has been doing in your life all the way from your humble beginnings in the great city of Mission Viejo, California. So thanks again, Greg. Yeah. So you're welcome. Wow. Uh, so much in there. I mean, uh, Greg really knows how to uh, pack in the content. And, and obviously, this is a topic that, uh, that we have uh, not talked a ton about on the podcast yet, though, very pertinent to kind of our sector. Uh, Phil, what were some of the things that, that Greg talked about? Was, was there anything like one thing in particular that really kind of jumped out at you? Aside well, from the fact that you guys are both South OC guys. Yeah, that, that goes without saying. I mean, that, that, but I laughed about it during and I wanted to bring it out. I wasn't going to say anything, but then I thought, you know what? This is, this really is how it works when we're doing this work. That if you keep your ears open, you keep your eyes open, you'll make connections with people. And I'm wired that way. So it comes naturally for me. But a lot of people aren't, but I think we're missing so much if we don't keep our eyes open to it. So that was, not in the script at all, was not anywhere near the outline, but it was just, I literally did the Facebook search during the interview. So that was like, if I had a producer, I totally would have had him or her doing it. But I, I'm, I, it's, we're all, you know, we're wearing all those hats here, folks. We're a little behind the scenes look into Think Orphan. Boy, it, it, the one thing that just from the content standpoint that he talked about in that interview that I always talk to people about, and I'm so glad he talked a lot about it, but it's really that going in and, and meeting people where they are, right? And that was consistent throughout if you were listening. It's meeting people to understand where they are so that we can help them to get where they can get, right? And I don't want to say need to be or where, you know, because usually where we say oh, we get to where they need to be, that's where we want them to be. But really where they are supposed to be, where, what they're gifted in, what they're talented in, what they're able to do. Those are the things that when we're talking about bridging the theory practice gap, when we meet people where they are, that's something that makes it so much easier to navigate that theory practice gap and, and even to see it 
and to see the nuances. Because if we come in and we think, oh, we know how to bridge the theory practice gap on this issue, we'll miss so much because we won't meet people. I mean, think about it in any friendship we have. I talk about this all the time. I've, I've talked about it on the show before, but it just brings it up again. I almost said it during the interview, but I knew I could talk about it here. But when you meet someone new, you don't make assumptions about how, where they need, need to get and what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be doing different things. I'm talking about when you meet people in your hometown. You just get to know them. You don't make an assumption that you can help them in any way or that they can help you in any way. You just get to know them. And then you figure out what that looks like. I got my hair cut the other day, and the conversation went completely different than I ever would have imagined it would go. If I would have gone in to say, oh, I'm going to talk about this with my barber. No, you just open to it, and you listen. Something that is a struggle for me often. But I've learned how to do that better over the years. And so, anyway, that was something that he said that I absolutely loved. Yeah. No, so good. A lot of good stuff in there. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about at this po- on this podcast, I think we even referenced it in our last episode with Ashley. Uh, the book that comes up over and over again is When Helping Hurts, um, you know, which isn't even about children at risk necessarily, <laughs> um, though, it, though it relates to it, right? Because it's looking at development, community development, you know, yep. those types of things, best practice and international uh, engagement and those types of things. And that has a, uh, an experience expression uh when it comes to kids at risk kids on the street kids in children's homes and so forth um and one of the things that i just love that he's highlighting now is just the importance of training uh people here um when I graduated, um, you know, from my undergrad, I had a lot of assumptions about uh, what the missions field was and um, what it would be a good and proper practice. And look, those mistakes are going to be made. Um, I'm not, I don't think that we should just like, you know, blindly excuse them, but everybody does make mistakes, but it's important that we actually emphasize that training thing. So um, one of the things that I love that he's addressing is saying, look, there's going to be international engagement, global development, justice issues, uh, children at risk issues. Um, These are um, things that we have to get trained up on. So I just love the humility that he approaches that, but also the professionalism to say, Hey, you know, we could actually, um, help in a way that doesn't hurt, you know, and that can be in development circles. Like we read about in when helping hurts. And it could also mean, uh, we can do that uh, when it comes to working with kids that are at risk. So, uh, Dr. Birch just really does that in, in such an excellent way and, and, and is training up people, including myself. I mean, you know, I, I, as he mentioned, I, I was, uh, at Multnomah for grad school and, and learned from him and the other professors there. And, um, you know, it's important to have those, those, uh, those investments, you know, it's to say, Hey, we want to do this work. Well, right. It's what this podcast is all about. We want to do this with excellence. And part of that is getting trained up. And, and I think especially for our American audience, you know, that's just something that we have to really say, you know, what can I do to make sure that I'm addressing these issues in a, in a, in a good way. Right. So that I'm not hurting. Uh, yep. but I am actually helping. So yep. um, I think that, that, that there's a lot in there. The conversation around Street Connected 
children and youth, you could tell that with Greg, he could go on and on about it uh, from yeah. personal experience and from research, um, which is what you would expect from somebody with their PhD and focusing right. research on, on, on uh, at-risk kids. Um, but uh, yeah, just great interview uh, with Greg, uh, yeah. with Dr. Birch as uh, I will eventually stop calling him, even though he's now a colleague as well. <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, yeah, yeah great I've, stuff from him. For sure. No, it's, it's you know, old habits die hard, right? When you call them people a certain thing. Um, my friend from childhood still comes calls my mom Miss Dark, um, which, is, which is, he always will. And he's now 46 years old. Actually, he's 47 now. Um, but, you know, it's funny you say that about when helping hurts. I, when I talked with Brian uh, Fickert about doing the forward to In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence, he said, well, I don't think that, you know, When Helping Hurts really is a book about children and, and children at risk and, and orphans and so on. And I just, I started laughing. I was like, no, no, it, it absolutely is. And, and then the next, the next year he was speaking at CAFO. So I'm like, okay, he got it between the last time we talked and, and, and now it was funny, but that, that brings up, you know, that's a good segue. Actually, I don't think you intended to, but the most recommended book we've ever had is when helping hurts. And it brings us to our first recommendation not as an interviewee, as a guest, but as a co-host, the Phil and Brandon recommend segment. What what do you got for us? Well, uh, I, I've got a good one, and I was actually kind of like, oh, should I recommend this one? Should I recommend that one? Um, you know, when when a lot of the racial justice stuff uh, came up middle of last year, and we just realized, holy smoke, some things are really sideways uh, in our country, and and that was not like the new revelation necessarily. Um, but, you know, I had just been living in Tanzania for several years where most of my <laughs> friends and social circles were, uh, were Africans. Right. So, uh, and all of a sudden I'm back here in the States with, um, with my, uh, with my African son and trying to figure these things out. And I said, man, I need to focus my reading a little bit more because as a white man, I am uh, likely to be reading other white men, probably just naturally. I don't know why that is. Um, but I said, you know, this year I'm going to only read um, books by people of color. Um, and uh, I read uh, a lot of different books. I definitely recommend. I started uh, off strong with some John Perkins. Uh, if you guys don't know John Perkins, he's amazing. Uh, you know, I read some international development, like from uh, Dambisa Moyo. Um, uh, you know, so it wasn't even like, oh, I'm only going to read, you know, stuff on racial justice. I did, but uh, on other things too, just listening to people um, from different backgrounds, different, different, uh, ethnicities. Um, but one book that I read over that year, um, that really, uh, does pertain quite a bit to this. And, uh, actually in the course that I, uh, co-teach or tag along, I suppose, with Dr. Bertit Multinoma, um, this is a, a person that I introduced, uh, to that, uh, lesson because the work that she's do been doing in California, uh, is just really remarkable. And that's, uh, Nadine Burke Harris. So the recommendation for today is the deepest well, um, healing the long-term effects of childhood adversity. I mean, if that doesn't speak to this community, I don't know what does. Yeah. Um, uh, if you guys are familiar with the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences, um, 
a lot of this focuses on just how detrimental those experiences, those traumas are um, when it comes to uh, children's health, but also their psychosocial and, and other aspects of who they are. Um, so this book I blasted through, which is not always the case when I'm reading somebody that has a doctor as their prefix, mm-hmm. like uh, like uh, Dr. Burkaris does. Um, but at any rate, uh, this is a fantastic book, very easy to read while also giving just some phenomenal insight on just how detrimental uh, adversity is on children, but also giving some uh, suggestions, recommendations on how to, on how to address those things. So yeah, yeah recommendation, the deepest well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, uh, fantastic read, highly recommend. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brandon, for that. I, I, uh, I'll have to go out and grab that. I've never, never read that one. So, um, all right, folks got another one in the books. Another great interview, uh, I thought, you know, I not not because of anything Brandon and I did, but but because of uh, Greg's uh, experience and expertise that he's developed over the years. What a what a great uh, gift we have in our in our community there. So uh, once again, I just thank you for being a part of this show. If you want to connect with us, go ahead to the Facebook uh, group, Think Orphan there. It's also at Orphan Excellence on Instagram. You can go, uh, you know, send a message. We'll we'll love to connect with you, hear feedback, any questions you have, um, anything, any guests that you'd want to see on this show. We'd love to be able to hear from you and um, and continue the conversation. We don't do this so we can just have a static thing that sits on the internet and is listened to, but we really want this to be a conversation that continues well beyond the the airwaves here but it's on the ground if we ever meet in person we can talk about things and and that that really does start with just making a simple comment on the facebook group joining it making a comment asking a question and uh we'd love to engage you there so thanks a lot again and uh, as always we hope that you're taking what you're learning here and you're using it to help you understand how you can love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot Have a great couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 